the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producer, Clark Hilton engineer for today's program. Today we're going to talk with Michelle Howell. She is the author of Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience. It's a great little book that provides great insight on the process of aging uh, as a person of faith. So we'll talk with Michelle about that. This Friday, in fact, I'm going to celebrate, uh, I'm taking the day in order to celebrate with my mom, who will be celebrating her 89th birthday. She and I engage in all kinds of conversations about the process of aging, her purpose in life, the value of life beyond years when you're as vigorous as you were as a younger person. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation with Michelle Howe about all of that. And in the process, thinking about my own aging, when you're living with someone who is elderly, uh, it certainly puts that um, that notion front and center, your own mortality, your the aging process as it uh, relates to you and so on. In fact, this weekend, I um, put up my Christmas lights. I was so excited to finally get them up, but I also fell from a great height <laughs> to realize, you know what? I'm not 21 anymore. I probably fell a, a full story onto the ladder and several other things that were in the way, bruised, sore, but busy, and uh, got back up and kept going. That's not always going to be the case, and I don't want to repeat that again, but uh, thinking a lot about the subject and uh, uh, the fact that the baby boomer generation is aging, that's going to have a significant impact in ways that our nation has never experienced before. We'll get into all of that when Michelle joins us. Well, the Justice Department's internal watchdog released a highly anticipated report today uh, that uh, documented misconduct, including the deliberate falsification of at least one key document during the investigation into President Trump's 2016 campaign. At the same time, the report uh, is, uh, I should say, concluded there was an adequate basis for opening one of the most politically sensitive investigations in FBI history. Now, that's being disputed by the other investigation that's ongoing. We'll talk more about that later. It began in secret during Trump's 2016 presidential run before then uh, special counsel Robert Mueller ultimately took it over. The report comes as uh, President Trump faces an impeachment inquiry in Congress centered on his efforts to press Ukraine to investigate a political rival. A probe the president also claims uh, has been politically motivated and biased. The House Judiciary Committee held a hearing today on the impeachment inquiry findings. The release of the Inspector General Michael Horowitz review will uh, not be the last word, as I mentioned, on the Russia investigation. A separate internal investigation continues, overseen by Attorney General Bill Barr and led by U.S. Attorney John Durham. More on all of that. Uh, in just a bit. Well, House Intelligence Committee ranking member Devin Nunez in a letter exclusively obtained by Fox News blasted committee chairman Adam Schiff for what he called an alarming and blatant disregard for the rules of governing the House impeachment inquiry against President Trump, saying Schiff transmitted his investigative findings to the Judiciary Committee for the next phase in the proceedings without consulting him. Well, the letter Nunez uh, sent to Schiff on Sunday night 
uh, has been obtained. And in that letter dated Friday, he wrote that Schiff chose not to consult with him so that he could meet a bogus deadline for impeaching the president. The GOP congressman also accused the Democrat of having a vendetta against the president. Well, a volcano on a small New Zealand island frequented by tourists erupted on Monday, killing at least five and creating dangerous conditions that prevented rescuers from accessing the island. The prime minister said about 100 tourists were on or near White Island when it erupted in the afternoon. It wasn't clear how many people remained on the island after the eruption. Police said fewer than 50 people were on White Island at the time. Both New Zealand and overseas tourists were among those injured. Well, the House Judiciary Committee released its report defining impeachable offenses before today's hearing. And the president's uh, heads to court to fight over the emoluments clause. Uh, U.S. officials misled the public about the progress in Afghanistan. The American people have constantly been lied to. That's what the uh, Washington Post reports. Border Patrol agent is debunking a viral video showing illegal immigrants scaling Trump's wall. And a biased California judge dropped six of the 15 bogus charges filed against uh, David Delayden and Sandra Merritt related to their undercover investigation of Planned Parenthood. PG&E, well, they've, uh, they're bankrupt and they've reached a 13.5 billion dollar settlement with California wildfire victims. And tighter government climate regulations by 2025 could wipe out uh, wipe up to $2.3 trillion off the value of companies in industries ranging from fossil fuel producers to agriculture and car makers. And the first person charged under Florida's red flag law has been found guilty, facing five years in jail. And on this day in history, 1965, Charlie Brown Christmas, the first animated TV special featuring characters from the Peanuts comic strip by Charles Schultz, premiere on CBS. On this day in 1962, the Petrified Forest in Arizona is designated a national park. 1975, President Gerald R. Ford signs a $2.3 billion seasonal loan authorization that officials of New York City and state say will prevent a city default. On this day in 1984, the five-day-old hijacking of a Kuwaiti jetliner that claims the lives of two Americans ends as Iranian security men seize control of that plane, which is parked at a Tehran airport. On this day in 1987, the first Palestinian intifada, or uprising, begins as riots break out in Gaza and spread to the West Bank, triggering a strong Israeli response. 1990, on this day, Solidarity founder Lech Walesa, he uh, wins Poland's presidential runoff by a landslide. And on this day in history, 2000, the U.S. Supreme Court orders a temporary halt in the Florida vote count on which Al Gore pins his best hopes of winning the White House. Well, as mentioned, the Justice Department's inspector general on Monday released the long-awaited internal review concerning the origins of the Russia investigation. The report concluded that investigators found no intentional misconduct or political bias surrounding efforts to seek a highly controversial FISA or Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant to monitor former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page in the early months of the Russian investigation, but also faulted the FBI over numerous omissions and inaccuracies in the application process. The IG, again, Inspector General Probe, identified at least 17 significant errors in the page application and said they would launch a new audit into the FISA process. At the same time, the report said key officials, including former FBI bosses James Comey and Andrew McCabe, did not act with political bias and extended a similar finding to the overall surveillance effort targeting Page. We did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the FBI 
FBI's decision to seek FISA authority on Carter Page, the report said. Inspector General Michael Horowitz and his investigators probed how the unverified anti-Trump dossier compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele was used to secure the original FISA warrant for Page in October of 2016, as well as other decisions at the outset of the FBI's counterintelligence investigation of Russian election interference and the Trump campaign. The release comes as Washington has been consumed with the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. The House Judiciary Committee was holding the inquiry's latest hearing uh, days after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said Democrats are moving forward with plans to bring articles of impeachment against the president over his dealings with Ukraine. More on that when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of the program, we'll talk with Michelle Howell. She's the author of Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience. We're talking about the FISA report. It concluded that investigators found no intentional misconduct or political bias surrounding efforts to seek a highly controversial Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant. That's a FISA warrant to monitor the former president, or I should say former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page. But the FISA report is sure to become a political football um, of its own alongside the impeachment probe that's already begun. Republicans led by Representative Nunez have contested the FISA warrant and its subsequent renewal application claiming the FBI misrepresented key evidence and omitted exculpatory information. He blasted the FBI for not revealing that evidence used to support the warrant application came from an unverified dossier compiled by Steele as opposition research for Hillary Clinton's campaign. Democrats have pointed to a footnote in the warrant application that gave a general characterization of the nature of the information and how the FBI believed that it was part of an effort to get information to discredit the campaign, though it didn't specifically mention Clinton or the Democratic National Committee. Well, Horowitz's team has uh, questioned why the FBI considered Steele a credible source and why the Bureau seemed to use news reports to bolster Steele's credibility. The inspector general has said his team has reviewed over one million records and conducted over 100 interviews, including several witnesses who only recently agreed to be interviewed. Page, who's been vocal about his belief that he was unjustly targeted, has expressed frustration over not being interviewed for the Horowitz investigation. Page is never charged with a a crime as a result of the surveillance. Well, the president and his Republican allies have long questioned the Justice Department's efforts to secure the surveillance warrant. Earlier this year, Attorney General Bill Barr said spying did occur against the Trump campaign during the campaign. But critics pushed back. James Comey, who was FBI director at the time, dismissed Barr's claims, saying he never thought of electronic surveillance as spying. Next, Horowitz is scheduled to testify before the Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday morning to answer questions about his probe. The findings come amid another broader inquiry related to the 2016 election. Um, Barr has uh, assigned John Durham, the U.S. attorney for Connecticut, to conduct an inquiry into alleged misconduct and alleged uh, improper government surveillance on the Trump campaign. During the 2016 election, that investigation is criminal in nature and Republicans may look to it to cover wrongdoing that the inspector general wasn't examining. Ahead of the release, some people uh, who worked for the FBI at the time attempted to get ahead of the report to defend their actions. Lisa Page, the ex-FBI lawyer who carried on the affair with a former FBI head of counterintelligence as the two exchanged anti-Trump text messages during the investigation, 
recently granted an interview for a sympathetic piece at the Daily Beast saying there's no fathomable way that I have committed any crime at all, end quote. Meanwhile, a key FBI player during the time frame, former FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, has been facing the prospect of federal charges after Horowitz faulted him in a separate inquiry over statements he made during a Hillary Clinton interview, or I should say related investigation. The review found that McCabe lacked candor when talking with the investigators, but the former FBI official has denied wrongdoing. Uh, He has not been indicted. Well, some of the takeaways from the Department of Justice watchdogs Russia probe, this 476 page document. Well, the report said investigators found no intentional misconduct. We did not find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the FBI's decision to seek FISA authority on Carter Page, the report said. It also said key officials, including former FBI Director James Comey, former Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, did not act with political bias. The IG report generally found that agents were justified in launching the investigation known as Crossfire Hurricane, as well as investigations into four Trump associates. Page, former Trump campaign foreign policy advisor George Papadopoulos, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, and former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. We found that each investigation was opened for an authorized purpose and in light of the low threshold established by department and FBI, um, the predication policy with adequate factual predication, the report said. There were uh, significant errors and omissions, despite the inspector general's findings that there was no evidence of political bias or improper motivation. He did report, uh, reveal that there were at least 17 significant inaccuracies. The report said the FISA application for Page omitted information that the FBI had obtained from another U.S. government agency detailing its prior relation uh, relationship with Page, including that Page had been approved as an operational contact for the other agency from 2008 to 2013. Another error in the application was the inclusion of a source characterization statement asserting that Christopher Steele's prior reporting had been corroborated and used in criminal proceedings, which overstated the significance of his past reporting and was not approved by Steele's handling agent. Christopher Steele is the British ex-spy whose unverified Trump dossier was used to help justify the warrant. The FISA applica- application rather, also omitted information regarding the reliability of a key Steele subsource, the report said. Notably, the FISA application also omitted Page's consensually monitored statement to the FBI, confidential human source, saying he literally never met Manafort, as well as Papadopoulos' consensually monitored statement to the FBI denying that anyone associated with the Trump campaign was collaborating with Russia or with outside groups like WikiLeaks in the release of emails. Also, the Steele dossier was key to the FISA files, despite concerns about it. Steele's now infamous dossier and research surrounding the 2016 presidential election provide much of the information used in the FISA application and renewals. But the inspector general found that the FBI did not have any specific information corroborating allegations against Page from Steele's reporting. We determined that prior to and during the pendency of the the FISA uh, application, the FBI was unable to corroborate any of the specific substantive allegations against Carter Page contained in the election reporting and relied on the FISA application and was only able to confirm the accuracy of a limited number of circumstantial facts, most of which were in public domain, the report said, noting that the information confirmed was only timing of events and dates when Page traveled to Russia. In addition to the lack of cooperation, the inspector general found that the FBI's interviews of Steele and his subsources revealed potentially serious problems with Steele's description of information in his election reports. 
The report stated that the FBI failed to notify the Office of Investigation, which was working on the page FISA applications, of the potentially serious problems identified with Steele's election reporting that arose as early as January of 2017. Well, Horowitz added that even as the FBI developed this information, we found no evidence that the Crossfire Hurricane team reconsidered its reliance on Steele's reporting in the FISA renewal application. In addition to the issues surrounding the accuracy of Steele's information, Horowitz, again the Inspector General, also pointed out that the Crossfire Hurricane team did not investigate who ultimately paid for Steele's reporting. One intelligence analyst uh, told the Inspector General's office that they focused instead on vetting the accuracy of the information in the report, because if the reporting turned out to be true, it would not matter to the team who ultimately paid for the research. Well, Steele's reporting was commissioned by opposition research firm Fusion GPS and funded by the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democratic National Committee through law firm Perkins Coy. According to the report, former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said that if the FBI had information about the Clinton campaign and the DNC funding of Steele's reporting, he would have expected the FBI to revise the language to be more explicit. Meanwhile, McCabe, despite the inaccuracies and uncooperated nature of Steele's report, said he wanted to include that information in an official intelligence community assessment to be delivered to then-President Barack Obama. McCabe told the inspector general's office he believed the Steele reporting needed to be included in that ICA report because President Obama had requested everything you have relevant to this topic of Russian influence. But CIA officials pushed back, arguing that Steele's reporting was simply uh, Internet rumor and merited inclusion only as an appendix in the final report. McCabe argued that including it as an appendix was simply tacking it on in a way that would minimize the information and prevent it from being uh, properly considered, despite Comey's assertion that Steele's reporting was not ripe enough, mature enough to be finished, uh, a finished intelligence report. Ultimately, the FBI's view did not prevail And the final ICA report included Steele's reporting only as a short summary in the appendix. Well, there are other key findings. We'll get into those in just a few moments. We're talking about the inspector general's uh, report that was released earlier today, much anticipated, although the next iteration of this investigation may be even more uh, serious in its charge against the FBI and others in this investigation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the much anticipated FISA report, a 476 page report, talking just a, about a few of the highlights in that report in anticipation of the second version, which is expected to be much more critical. One of the. Um, uh, Things that the inspector general's report revealed uh, that at times the crossfire hurricane investigation, that's what the uh, investigation was called into the Trump campaign, wasn't properly sharing information with the Justice Department or other key figures who should have been privy to updated information. Now, according to the report, the inspector general's office found the crossfire hurricane team failed to inform department officials of significant information that was available to the team at the time that the FISA applications were submitted. Much of that information was inconsistent with or undercut the assertions contained in the FISA applications that were used to support probable cause, and in some instances resulted in inaccurate information being included in the applications, the report said. 
He went on to add that the inspector general believed it was the obligation of those agents aware of the information to share it so that decision makers had the opportunity to consider it both for their own assessment of probable cause and for consideration of whether to include the information in the application so that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court received a complete and accurate recitation of the relevant facts. But because those FBI officials on the crossfire hurricane failed to do so, officials at the Justice Department who reviewed one or more of the page applications and renewals, including former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates, ex-acting Attorney General Dana Bont, and former Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, did not have accurate and complete information at the time they approved the application. The report went on to say that while we do not speculate whether department officials would have authorized the FBI to seek Uh, to use FISA authority, had they been made aware of all relevant information, it was clearly the responsibility of Crossfire Hurricane team members to advise them of such critical information so that they could uh, make it a fully informed decision. Now, what we have learned from this report, this 400 plus uh, page report, nearly 500 pages, is that uh, they did not uh, allege that there was a political motivation uh, behind this, but that there were some significant, 17 significant errors in the process that was used. Another finding in the report, the use of confidential human resources. The report points out that the inspector general revealed that the FBI's crossfire hurricane team indeed used confidential human sources to contact and record conversations with Page, Papadopoulos, and other high-level campaign officials who uh, was not a subject of the probe. All of these interactions were consensually monitored and recorded by the FBI, the report stated, noting that the recorded interactions took place before and after Page and Papadopoulos were advisors on the campaign. The Horowitz determined that the use of confidential human sources com- uh, complied with the requirement that investigative activities be conducted for an authorized purpose. But the report revealed that the Crossfire Hurricane team omitted several key statements made by Page and Papadopoulos during those recorded interactions. The report revealed that Page made statements to the confidential human source that would have, if true, contradicted the notion that Page was conspiring with the Russians and that contradicted the steel reporting received by the team. So this was significant. In those meetings, Page said that he had literally never met or said one word to Manafort, and Papadopoulos denied that anyone associated with the Trump campaign was collaborating with Russia or outside groups such as WikiLeaks in the release of hacked DNC emails. Both of those statements were omitted in FISA applications and from reports um, to other officials. Now, the report stated that investigators found no evidence the FBI made Page's statements from this confidential human source meeting available to higher ups in the Office of Investigations or in the National Security Division until mid-June of 2017. Well, meanwhile, the inspector general's office also investigated Papadopoulos' allegation that the FBI used Maltese professor Joseph Mifsud to pass information to Papadopoulos as a setup to launch the Crossfire Hurricane investigation. uh, Horowitz said they didn't find any records or evidence indicating that that had, in fact, been the case. Well, prior to the 2016 election, Papadopoulos met in London with Mifsud, who told him the Russians had dirt in the form of emails that could damage Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Papadopoulos then told Australian diplomat Alexander Downer, Of the new information, Downer uh, reported Papadopoulos' uh, comments to the FBI. Papadopoulos has long said he felt he was being spied on, telling uh, news sources that he met with longtime FBI informant Stephen Halper and his female associate, who went under the alias of, well, uh, Azra Turk. Papadopoulos said that he uh, saw Turk three times in London, once over drinks, once over dinner, once 
uh, with Halper. He also said that back in May that he always suspected that he was being recorded. Neither Halper nor Turk's names were mentioned in the Horowitz report. The report also revealed that the Crossfire Hurricane team was interested in seeking FISA surveillance targeting Papadopoulos, but the FBI attorneys were not supportive. Um, also, uh, the report indicated that it uh, had long been reported that ex-counterintelligence agent Peter Strzok was the FBI official who formally opened the Crossfire Hurricane investigation in July of 2016. But the inspector general report revealed that it was actually his supervisor who ultimately made that decision. Uh, Mr. Prystap, uh, his decision to open the probe was based on a a consensus reached by uh, after multiple days of meetings that included Strzok, McCabe, the FBI general counsel, FBI deputy general counsel, the report said. And it also revealed that Prystep uh, originally wanted to assign the investigation to a deputy assistant director other than Strzok, because although he had confidence in Strzok's counterintelligence capabilities, he had concerns about his personal relationship with Lisa Page affecting the crossfire hurricane team. Strzok and Page, an FBI lawyer, were romantically involved. And finally, um, U.S. Attorney from Connecticut, John Durham, who's been conducting a wide-ranging investigation of the origins of this same investigation, released a rare statement after the Horowitz report was made available to the public today, saying he disagreed with the inspector general's conclusions. So, again, this will not be the last word on the origin of the uh, FBI probe into the Trump campaign. Uh, Again, he uh, disagrees with the inspector general's conclusions, writing based on evidence collected to date. And while our investigation is ongoing last month, we advised the inspector general that we do not agree with some of the uh, report's conclusions as to uh, predication and how the FBI case was opened, Durham said on Monday. He went on to say, I have the utmost respect for the mission of the Office of Inspector General and the comprehensive work that went into the report prepared by Mr. Horowitz and his staff. However, our investigation is not limited to developing information from within component parts of the Justice Department. Our investigation has included developing information from other persons and entities, both in the U.S. and outside the U.S., Um, It was reported uh, back in October that Durham's ongoing probe has transitioned into a full-fledged criminal investigation, meaning he had the ability to charge individuals. So this is uh, essentially phase one of the FISA uh, investigation. Phase two is expected at some point in the future. Uh, I should also mention that the Justice Department's um, uh, Bill Barr has also disputed the findings of the inspector general. in this this probe. Meanwhile, the House Judiciary Committee held an impeachment hearing today where committee lawyers are, were present uh, presenting evidence in the case. Democrats began to draft articles of impeachment against the president at the direction of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This is part of that process. The committee um, received the presentations of evidence from Judiciary Committee Majority Counsel Barry Burke and Intelligence Committee Majority Counsel Daniel Goldman. Stephen Castor will serve as counsel for Republicans on both the Judiciary and Intelligence Committee. At the center of the impeachment inquiry is the president's efforts to press the Ukrainian president to launch politically related investigations regarding former Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter's dealings in Ukraine, as well as issues related to the 2016 presidential election. The president's request came after millions in U.S. military aid to Ukraine had been frozen. Democrats have argued this shows quid pro quo arrangement. Trump has denied any wrongdoing. And having sat through all of the uh, testimony, I think the uh, Stephen Castor did a pretty fair job of explaining why the Republicans are opposed to the interpretation applied by the Democrats. That, of course, is not the end. It is just uh, the latest phase in this ongoing process.
Well, House Intelligence Chairman Adam Schiff faces ethics and legal hurdles for obtaining and exposing phone records of political enemies. Knowledgeable observers say Schiff may have violated the same rules he used to threaten House Republicans. Uh, This is according to Tom Anderson, who's the director of Government Integrity Project at the National Legal and Policy Center. It's a watchdog group. We're going to take a break here in a moment. We'll tell you more about that. Schiff has been a vehement opponent to this kind of information being made public and yet has uh, decided to do that on his own. We'll tell you what some of the consequences might be, if any. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Michelle Howell. She is the author of Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience. That's coming up next hour. Well, Adam Schiff, you might recall last week, released the uh, phone records of some of his political rivals. And that may, in fact, prompt an ethics scrutiny because we need more investigations of one sort or another. Well, uh, according to one watchdog group, he may have violated the same rule he used to threaten House Republicans. Um, Schiff uh, warned Republicans on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence not to reveal the name of the whistleblower who first filed a complaint about the president, uh, the now infamous July 25th call. Schiff warned Republican members if they did anything to publicize the whistleblower, it would be a violation of House ethics rules. Uh, He didn't want other members to expose private information of the whistleblower, Anderson said of Mr. Schiff. But uh, he's doing the same thing to people who don't have anything to do with the impeachment process. Well, the House Intelligence Committee, chaired by Schiff, has been the main player in the Democrats' impeachment inquiry targeting the president. Well, Mr. Anderson, who again is... um, the director of the Government Integrity Project of the National Legal and Policy Center, a watchdog group, referred to a provision of House rules against actions to cast discredit or dishonor on House, the committee, a member of uh, a delegate, uh, a resident commissioner, or, or uh, bring the House, the committee, or a member, delegate, or resident commissioner, commissioner rather, into um, disrepute. Repute. So there may be some pushback on that. And he did admit over the weekend in a media interview that only uh, conservatives slash Republicans are concerned about this, whereas he had expressed concern earlier. So the back and forth continues. Keeping up with it all is a bit of a chore, but there you have it. Well, in other more serious news, in October 1940, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt declared, I have said this before, but I shall say it again and again and again. Your boys are not going to be sent into any foreign wars. This was a reiteration of his earlier assertion, we are keeping out of the wars that are going on in Europe and in Asia. Our opponents are seeking to frighten the country by telling people that present administration is deliberately drifting into war. You know better than that, end quote. Well, Roosevelt uh, campaigned on neutrality in 1940. He assured his constituents, I give to the people of this country this most solemn assurance. There is no secret treaty, no secret obligation, no secret commitment, no secret understanding in any shape or form, direct or indirect, with any other government or any other nation in any part of the world to involve this nation in any war, end quote. Well, unfortunately, Germany's Führer, Adolf Hitler, and Japan's uh, prime minister didn't cooperate. It was on December 7, 1941, more than 350 Japanese planes attacked Pearl Harbor, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, killing 2,390 American servicemen and civilians and wounded 1,282. The attack sank or damaged eight battleships, three cruisers, three destroyers, one mine layer, and destroyed 188 aircraft. It took four years and a full military industrial capability of the United States to defeat 
uh, Japan at that time, and that included a young naval aviator by the name of George Herbert Walker Bush. There was no more devastating surprise attack on the United States until 9-11. Well, after the attack, Roosevelt stated December 7th, 1941, a date which would live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Always will we remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounded determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God, end quote. Well, historian Victor Davis Hansen writes of that occasion. After Pearl Harbor, the United States went into a rearmament frenzy, the likes of which had never been seen in history. America produced more airplanes and ships than all World War II powers combined. The U.S. military grew to 12 million soldiers. American military leadership in the Pacific, led by Admirals William Halsey, Chester Nimitz, and Raymond um, Spruance, along with Generals Curtis LeMay and Douglas MacArthur proved far more skilled than their Japanese counterparts. And the American soldier, sailor, airman, and marine, after a busy, uh, bruising learning experience in early 1942, proved every bit as ferocious as uh, veteran Japanese fighters. It is with honor and respect to those who died or suffered terrible injuries that Sunday morning that we should never again fall into the slumber that allowed such a tragedy as Pearl Harbor or the attack on September 11, 2001. Again, it was said at the time by Roosevelt, we will never forget. And yet that requires intention. Well, the gunman who opened fire on Friday morning at Naval Air Station Pensacola in Florida, fatally shooting three people, has been identified as Mohammed Saeed al-Shamrani, an aviation student from Saudi Arabia. And investigators are looking into whether the attack is terrorism related. The shooter, who was wielding a handgun despite firearms not being allowed on base, was confronted and taken out by a pair of responding officers, according to officials. Two people were killed at the scene while the third victim died after being rushed to a local hospital. Seven others suffered injuries and were undergoing uh, treatment, including two officers, one of whom was shot in the arm and the other in the knee. Uh, Both are expected to survive. Investigators have not yet determined a motive and were not ready to confirm the shooter's identity. An FBI special agent in charge of the Jacksonville field office said at a news conference late Friday, the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Florida, Larry Keefe, also added that more details about the shooter are expected to become available and now have been. Six Saudis... um, were also arrested near the scene of the shooting on Friday and are being questioned by investigators. The government of Saudi Arabia needs to make things better for these victims, said the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, who said he had spoken to the president about the shooting, told reporters during a news conference also Friday afternoon. They're going to owe a debt here, given that this was one of their individuals. And that investigation uh, continues. Well, confidential documents revealed U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan. So uh, publishes the Washington Post. Well, the confidential trove of government documents obtained by the Post reveals that senior U.S. officials failed to tell the truth about the war in Afghanistan throughout the 18-year campaign, making rosy pronouncements they knew to be false and hiding unmistakable evidence the war had become unwinnable. The documents were generated by a federal project examining the root failure of the longest armed conflict in U.S. history. They include more than 2,000 pages of previously unpublished notes of interviews with people who played a direct role in the war, from generals and diplomats to aid workers and Afghan officials. The U.S. government tried to shield the identities of the vast majority of those interviewed from the project and conceal nearly all of their remarks. The Post won release of the documents under the Freedom of Information Act after a three-year legal battle. 
Well, in the interviews, more than 400 insiders offered unrestrained criticism of what went wrong in Afghanistan and how the United States became mired in nearly two decades of war. With a bluntness rarely expressed in public, the interviews lay bare um, pent-up complaints, frustrations, confessions, along with second-guessing and backbiting. We were devoid of a fundamental understanding of Afghanistan. We didn't know what we were doing. That's a quote from the three-star army general who served as the White House's Afghan war czar during the Bush and Obama administrations, Douglas Lute. He told government interviewers in 2015, he added, what are we trying to do here? We didn't have the foggiest notion of what we were undertaking. Not a very um, uh, rosy picture. He went on to say, if the American people knew the magnitude of this dysfunction, 2,400 lives lost, he added, blaming the deaths of U.S. military personnel on bureaucratic breakdowns among Congress, the Pentagon and the State Department. Who will say this was in vain? Since 2001, more than 775,000 U.S. troops have deployed to Afghanistan, many repeatedly. Of those, 2,300 died. There were 20,582, or rather 89, who were wounded in action, according to the Defense Department figures. The interviews through an extensive array of voices brings into sharp relief the core failings of the war that persist to this day. They underscore how three presidents, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, and their military commanders have been unable to deliver on their promises to prevail in Afghanistan. With most speaking on the assumption that their remarks would not become public, U.S. officials acknowledge that their war-fighting strategies were fatally flawed and that Washington wasted enormous sums of money trying to remake Afghanistan into a modern nation. The interviews also highlight the U.S. government's botched attempts to curtail runaway corruption, build a competent Afghan army and police force, and put a dent in Afghanistan's thriving opium trade. The U.S. government was not carried, uh, has not carried out a comprehensive accounting of how much it's spent on the war in Afghanistan, but the costs are staggering. Since 2001, the Defense Department, State Department, U.S. Agency for International Development have spent or appropriated some $934 billion and $978 billion, according to an inflation-adjusted estimate calculated uh, by a political science professor and co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University. Those figures don't include money spent by other agencies, such as the CIA, the Department of Veterans Affairs, which is responsible for medical care for wounded soldiers. The documents also contradict a long chorus of public statements from U.S. presidents, military commanders, diplomats who assured Americans year after year that they were making progress in Afghanistan and the war was worth fighting. News and traffic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part by Zero Res this afternoon. Later this hour, we're going to talk with author Michelle Howell. Her book is Joyous Faith, the Key to Aging with Resilience. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Well, the Supreme Court left in place a Kentucky law, this is uh, today, mandating doctors perform ultrasounds and show fetal images to patients before they can perform abortions. This is the Kentucky Supreme Court. The highest court declined without comment to hear an appeal brought by the American Civil Liberties Union uh, on behalf of the state's lone abortion clinic. Well, the Kentucky law, which requires a doctor to describe an ultrasound in detail while the pregnant woman hears the fetal heartbeat, was passed in 2017. It was signed by Governor Matt Bevan, a a pro-life Republican who lost his bid for re-election last month. And the ACLU had argued that Kentucky statute had no medical basis and was designed only to coerce a woman into opting out of having an abortion by giving her informed consent. 
I added that last little part. Defenders of the law said it represented a straightforward attempt to help patients make a well-informed decision. The high court's actions let stand the law which had been up, uh, upheld by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. The senior staff at the ACLU Reproductive Freedom Project... Reproductive freedom. That's a good innocuous name for it. Said in a statement Monday that the high court had rubber stamped Kentucky's interference in the doctor patient relationship by giving a woman an opportunity to see in uh, utero what she is carrying uh, and not preventing her from making a decision to terminate the pregnancy, but giving her a full uh, knowledge of what she is uh, is carrying by refusing to review the Sixth Circuit ruling. The Supreme Court, they went on to say, has rubber stamped extreme political interference in the doctor patient relationship. Um, I doubt that the child in utero would hold to that argument. But the law is not only unconstitutional, they went on to say, but as leading medical experts and ethicists explain, deeply unethical. We are extremely disappointed that the Supreme Court uh, will allow this blatant violation of the First Amendment and fundamental medical ethics to stand. So more information uh, is a violation, according to their view of things. Well, a deal on the USMCA, uh, that's, the, of course, the trade deal with uh, Mexico and Canada, the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, has been finalized and could be completely settled by Christmas. Well, trade negotiators from the United States, Mexico, and Canada have reached that agreement that makes changes to the enforcement of the uh, USMCA, multiple sources have confirmed a final deal could come together in the next 24 hours, according to sources, paving the way for ratification by all three countries. U.S. stocks were little changed on that development, but it certainly is good news to all involved and impacted by it. Well, House Democrats and Nancy Pelosi expressed concerns over enforcement and the need to make sure Mexico pays workers in auto plants an average of $16 an hour. Mexico has rejected that enforcement mechanism, but has said it's willing to allow a neutral third party to accompany U.S. and Mexican regulators. There's also a process in uh, case Mexico becomes non-compliant. Well, on Sunday, Mexico's top trade negotiator, Jesus Sead, uh, told Mexican lawmakers that U.S. Trade Representative um, Robert Lighthizer wanted to change the definition of what constitutes North American steel and aluminum. Um, the Mexican undersecretary to North America uh, spoke with reporters um, and said that Mexico, which imports all of its aluminum, is not okay with changes to its definition, but would be open to tighter rules for steel after five years. He will present uh, Mexico's terms and did so today. The USMCA, which overhauls the uh, Clinton-era North American Free Trade Tre- Agreement, commonly known as NAFTA, requires 75% of automobile components to be manufactured in the United States, in Canada and Mexico, in order to avoid tariffs and that 40 to 45 percent of automobile parts be made by workers who earn at least $16 an hour by 2023. The president signed USMCA, commonly referred to as New NAFTA, on the 30th of November of last year. But the House Speaker has yet to put the trade agreement on the House floor due to the Democrats' enforcement concerns. Well, Mexico ratified the uh, trade deal in June, and Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau has said he's willing to uh, bring up the vote once it passes the U.S. House. U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer uh, said the delay has drawn the wrath of both the Trump administration and Republicans who say not getting the deal signed before Congress adjourns by the 20th of December could put in uh, the whole agreement in jeopardy with 2020 being an election year. Well, last month, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross said USMCA is much better on key issues than any trade deal in U.S. history, while noting its delay has cost the economy billions of dollars. We'll continue to watch what happens in the days ahead as the clock
is ticking. And an American graduate student held in Iran has been released in exchange for an Iranian scientist held by the U.S. Iran's foreign minister and the, and the White House, rather, both announced that Princeton University graduate uh, student Ji-Yu Wang uh, was exchanged for scientist Masoud Soleimani. Brian Hook, the U.S. special representative for Iran, accompanied the Iranian scientist to Switzerland to make the exchange and will return with Wang, a U.S. official, told the Associated Press. The swap took place in Zurich, and Hook and Wang are now en route to um, uh, Germany, uh, Landstuhl, Germany, where Wang will be examined by doctors, the official said. Hook is expected to return to the U.S. from Germany alone, as Wang is expected to be elevated uh, rather evaluated for several hours, uh, several days. In his opening remarks at the Reagan National Defense Forum on Saturday night, National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien announced that Wang will be coming home from a U.S. military hospital in Germany in the next day or two before Christmas. After more than three years of being held prisoner in Iran, Ji-Yu uh, Wang will return to the United States, the president said in a statement released by the White House on Saturday. The highest priority of the United States is the safety and well-being of its citizens. Freeing Americans held held captive is of vital importance to my administration, and we will continue to work hard to bring home all our citizens wrongly held captive overseas. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo said on Saturday that Wang was on his way back to the United States, where he will soon be reunited with his wife and son. Well, Willamette Week is reporting that if a majority of the Portland Planning and Sustainability Commission has its way, new private buildings downtown will be required to include space where Houseless Portlanders, apparently that's replacing homeless Portlanders, can rest, which could include sleeping and pitching tents. The heart of the issue is that we have increasing housing costs and we cannot support all of the people who live here now and are going to live here in the future. Uh, One of the planning commissioners who pushed hardest to include the new language, Oriana Bagnera, her proposal would stretch what's asked of developers and owners to of new private buildings, such as stores and apartment complexes. Her idea initially drew support from all of her colleagues, but after further discussion encountered strong pushback from a minority of commissioners who uh, may still try to derail it before it reaches the city council. So it may, in fact, provide places for people uh, who are houseless to rest. But what will that do for the business And for those who might um, patronize the business, uh, if, in fact, the entrance or the spaces were not occupied by houseless residents. Well, the controversial proposal comes as City Hall tries a variety of ways to come to terms with a housing shortage that's left thousands of people sleeping in the uh, wintry streets. In recent weeks, Willamette Week reported that the city has rolled out a new plan for how uh, first responders respond to non-emergency 911 calls and floated a proposal to ban camping adjacent to Providence Park and other spectator venues. Well, the newest issue arose as a planning commissioner uh, nears the conclusion of a three-year effort to streamline the city's design review process. And they're seriously considering requiring new businesses to provide space, not just for their customers, but for those who want to, as uh, the commissioner put it, rest uh, in in around their public building, or excuse me, private building. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Michelle Howe. Joyous Faith is the title of her book, The Key to Aging with Resilience. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the demographics of aging in the United States and in Canada are shifting like no other time in history. For most, this means finding a way to accept physical limitations, pain, lost dreams, and bygone beauty, living longer but not necessarily happier lives. While the current growth of the population ages 65 and older, driven by the baby boom generation, is unprecedented in U.S. history. As they pass through each major stage of life, baby boomers ages 55 to 73, this year have brought both challenges and opportunities to the economy, the infrastructure and institutions. The number of Americans ages 65 and older is projected to nearly double from 52 million in 2018 to 95 million in 2060. Well, getting older is not all bad, as research shows. With age, we do much better at a number of things. Well, in joyous faith... The key to aging with resilience, my next guest, Michelle Howe, she accentuates the positive aspects of aging, uh, not the least of which is character and trustworthiness. Uh, She gives encouragement for cultivating contentment, reconciliation, forgiveness, nurturing hope, and adjusting our expectations. And she encourages readers to develop a longer-term plan, leaving a legacy that outlasts us. She says that each of us chooses how we live in the same way we choose uh, to live well. We can also choose to die well. Well, Michelle Howell is the author of 25 books and has published over 2,500 articles and reviews on parenting, women's issues, and the empty nest. She's been on Focus on the Family and has featured careleader.org regularly on single parenting uh, resources. And her books include Caring for Your Aging Parents, Lessons in Love, Loss, and Letting Go, and Empty Nest, What's Next? Parenting Adult Children Without Losing Your Mind. Today, we'll talk about one of her books, Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging, with resilience. Michelle, how thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, I'm so glad to be back again. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Well, this Friday, I'm going to take the day off because I'm celebrating my mother's 89th birthday. She lives with my husband and me, and this subject is so near and dear to my heart as I'm walking her home and and, and thinking about my own mortality and, and aging. So this is such a helpful book to those of us who are either in the midst of it ourselves or uh, in on the journey with others. Uh, again, Joyous Faith, the Key to Aging with Resilience. Now, you write that aging is like an endurance race. Explain what you mean by that. Well, I liken aging, you know, I, and, I, and I, when I say aging, that's, it's a loose term because, as you said in your introduction, people 65 and older, I mean, it's the baby boomer generation. There's so many of us. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some people start to feel older at 50. Some people feel older at 55. I'm nearing 60. So it's, you know, we're all different in what we, you know, are thinking about is what constitutes older age. But for us, all of us, and whatever season of life you're in, it is like an endurance race. And I'm thinking of like a long race, like a marathon, you know, you can be just trekking along and you're doing really well. And then without warning, something major causes you to fall or stumble. You know, you can have a medical diagnosis, there could be a death in the family or a friend. You get physical limitations that just keep increasing vocational loss. You can change your address. You can have financial constraints, friends that just pass away unexpectedly, you name it. You know, and as we age, all these real-life occurrences ramp up in both intensity and frequency. And I think that is one of the challenges of aging is that what might have happened sporadically when you were a younger person seems to be you know, coming at you from every side pretty much all the time. And, you know, it takes a lot of inner strength, faith, 
and a, a real joyful, um, proactive attitude to handle all those challenges when they hit you. Yeah, and it it seems to happen at a time when your capacity is diminished to perhaps handle all of those things. And yet I consider, and my mother and I have this conversation quite often, that this is God's design, that certain capacities diminish while these challenge uh, challenges arrive. And there's purpose even in that. You write that um, aging brings uncertainty and fear rather than deep joy. Uh, and I think you've just described the reasons for that. But would you like to add to this uncertainty that makes all of us a bit anxious about the process of aging? Yeah, I do. And you know, one thing, you know, even I think that we also have to remember is that as we age, it might be the very first time in our life that we realize we were born to be interdependent and not independent. And, you know, us Americans are so Mm -hmm. proudly independent, or we want to be, and yet the Lord created us to be relational and to need one another and need Him. And I think as we age, and we do seem to be facing a lot of uncertainty, and fear can just creep in, and then it can steal our joy, And I think if anything else happens in in this aging, as an older adult, we really realize that we have a lack of control over just about everything. Again, you know, when you're younger, you have that still illusion of control or plan B, plan C, plan D. But as your body gets weaker, as your stamina decreases, maybe your uh, mental acuity, you know, starts to drop, all parts of the physical aging you start to realize, wow, I can't do everything I once did at the pace I once did it. I can't accomplish as much. And maybe my mind just can't, you know, figure out those creative problem-solving, you know, conundrums that we once were just so good at. And I think all of this serves to to really force us to trust the Lord, to really study Scripture, and, and really hone into the verses that talk about how he is faithful, how he will give us grace, how he is with us forever. He will, you know, be with us even till our old age. Just as you said, you know, this is a God-designed season of life. So we need to look to him to know how to live it in a way that is for our good and then brings glory to him. Hmm. Again, the title of your book is Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience. Uh, finding joy in what seems like a very uh, difficult scenario is the challenge in the aging process, but it also brings with it this this process a gift of time. The pace is slowed, and so we do have an opportunity to perhaps, as you just described, recognize um, God's uh, our need for God, our need for others, and His uh, His care for us in ways that perhaps when we were younger we simply were less aware of. Right. And, you know, I I talk about in the book, too, that, you know, one of the benefits of aging is that we can become better comforters to others. You know, and I I talk about a story. We know when I was in my, let's say, 20s, and my mom had hot flashes and sleepless nights, and I would just look at her with sweat dripping off her brow, and I think, I don't even understand that. You know, and Mm -hmm. I knew while I felt for her, my sympathy was pretty minimal because I had not experienced much. But then, you know, you fast forward 30 years and I went through all that. Boy, my compassion quotient is at its maximum now because I've endured it. And like in every area of life, the more we suffer, the more challenges that we have to endure and go through and the trials 
that seem to just, you know, bombard us at different seasons of life can make us more compassionate, gentler, more patient, you know, and more ready to jump in the fray to lend a hand to others who are suffering around us. And I just think, you know, we never grow strong in character when we're, you know, riding high in the good times of life. No, God uses suffering and pain and loss to do something within our hearts and our minds and our souls and build our character that, you know, having a great vacation will never do. So, I mean, I always look at that. Life is full of the bitter and the sweet. We're going to continue our conversation again. My guest is Michelle Howell. Her book is titled Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience, a great resource to help us wrap our hearts and our minds around the fact that our health might be declining, uh, circumstances are changing, but God is in the middle of it and has good purpose for us right up until he calls us home. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Michelle Howell. She is the author of Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience, an excellent book to help us walk through the process that God has designed for all of us if we are blessed to live a long life. Now, one of the things that I do for my mother's birthday is I uh, have a, a formal tea for her. We started out with uh, she and several of her friends, she lost one of them last year, and that number has dwindled. There are three others who will be joining us this year. One of the uh, the things that people experience in the aging process is loneliness, the loss of friends, people who share that uh, that history that you lived together. Uh, while my mother has a, a family uh, and we support her, there's that loss of friendship that, that, that she has experienced. What do you say about loneliness and the loss of those of friends who share that history and, and life together that cannot be replaced. Yeah, and that's a, a great example. And, and so many older people, like you just said, have lost spouses and family members and friends, some children, some grandchildren. And, you know, the older we get, those losses start to add up. And, and again, that's the reason that we have to keep immersing ourselves into God's Word you know, meditating on verses that bring us comfort and hope and also help us to keep eternity in mind. You know, this is not the last page of the story for any of us. Mm -hmm. We have eternity in front of us. This will be a blip on the screen someday. And I think for myself, I have to remember to, you know, keep speaking out truth and gratefulness and thankfulness and, and really abide by that principle in Philippians 4, 8, where it talks about, you know, think about what is good and true and right and proper, you know, and if you are struggling with depression or discouragement, because these losses are adding up in your life and they do hurt us and we do grieve and, and grief is appropriate, but we can't live there forever. You know, and I'll just make a list of everything I'm thankful for today. And I might start with just waking up in the morning and being able to to tackle whatever is before me, you know, and I'm thankful that I'm not in the hospital today. I'm thankful that, uh, you know, I know Jesus is my Savior. I'm thankful for my spouse. Whatever it is that you can just, you know, hone in on those right and true and proper thoughts, it will eventually transform your emotions and lift you up out of whatever doldrums you're in. And the second part of that formula is serve somebody else. And, you know, Mm. older people might say, well, I can't drive anymore. You don't need to drive to pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. And most older people even have smartphones. I mean, I know my my elderly parents do. 
So you can pray. You know, you mm-hmm. get your Bible out in a journal and you make a list of people who have needs, get on that prayer chain at your church and spend some time interceding for the people that you know have needs. Write them a note, you know, call them. It doesn't have to cost anything and it doesn't have to until you even having to leave your home. You know, and I, I do have a chapter on that too where mm-hmm. this woman was an overseas missionary and then she got older and then it was in, in city missions and then she couldn't drive anymore. So then she was making calls and then after a while she, she didn't she was losing her memory. And then she said, but I can pray. And on my, my bed, I can pray and talk to Jesus about all these people. And I thought, oh, my, I want to be that woman when I get older. Yes. To never be defining how I serve the Lord by physical limitations that he does allow. And I can't balk at them, but I have to find a way to rise above them. Yes. You have two wonderful chapters, Keeping an Account of God's Faithfulness, another, Finding Your Purpose, and Limitations Do Not Define You. These are chapters, again, that help us to have an eternal perspective during this difficult season. Now, any advice on how you can learn to stay strong in the midst of hard circumstances or situations that are outside of our control? I think that's one of the things that are, that's most fearful about aging. Am I going to lose my home? Am I going to lose my health? Am I going to lose my capacity to support myself? Those circumstances that you have no control over, and yet you are subject to those circumstances. Yes, and you know, I think one thing, too, as we age, as I said earlier, we realize how little control we have over anything. I mean, we can eat right, we can exercise, we can get enough sleep, we can try to keep stress levels down, we can do everything a good doctor might tell us to do, but we will still end up deteriorating, weakening, an illness or a disease will take us one way or another. However, even as we're acknowledging our body changing and weakening and slowing down and just not being as um, robust as it once was, the only area that, you know, God's word says grow stronger is our inner man. And I always think about that, you know, I'm going to lose strength. I won't be able to, you know, do all the things I'm doing now. But God says, you know, even though my outer man is perishing, the inner man will be renewed day by day by day. And that is a promise that every older person needs to commit to memory. And that's in Second Corinthians 4. And I think, you know, we have to remember that. We will get weaker. We will get, you know, slower. But inside, we can grow stronger. And, you know, that's where it counts is the inside. Because what we are on the inside will affect our thoughts and our emotions and our actions and our legacy that we will leave to other people. Mm-hmm. In fact, you have a chapter titled Leaning into Jesus for the Strength You Need. Now, one of the uh, keys to resilience you write about is joyous laughter, that if we want to age with resilience, laughter needs to be an important part of that. Absolutely. God designed our bodies to laugh our emotions, to feel um, a happy, healthy release, to be joyous. You know, and I always refer back to a good friend of mine who in the last, I would say, five years, has taught me that perspective on laughter and how important it is. I tend to be way too serious. If you were talking to my husband, he'd be like, you don't laugh enough. And I'm like, well, well, you know, things are heavy and we're trying to get so much done. And, and, and God graciously brought a gal into my life. And, you know, she's had so many trials and her husband and her have been through so much. And yet she laughs. And the countenance on her face is always smiling and joyous. And she's not denying the suffering and the challenges that they're going through. But she reaches a higher plane by finding a way to laugh and helping others laugh, too. And she's just contagious. 
And I often think, I want to be just like you, like right now, because she spreads joy. And she spreads hope and she spreads encouragement. And she's actually in the small group I lead. And, you know, she'll make a comment and all the women will laugh. And we just feel better about everything. Mm -hmm. And I think that is so important. I think Christians often are like I tend to be too serious. And we don't realize, you know, God created us with an ability to release a lot of tension and stress by just laughing. You also write about the importance of legacy. Uh, sometimes looking back over a long life, there's a tremendous amount of regret. Uh, looking forward, there doesn't seem to be much opportunity to make a mark. Talk a bit about the importance of legacy, particularly if there have been regrets. Well, I, I love the verse in Isaiah where it says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And I know that we all have regrets. And I believe that we should look back at times to learn from mistakes so that we don't make them again. But God doesn't want us to be mired in all of our mistakes and our failings and sin in the past. You know, we go to him, we ask for forgiveness, we start making better choices, you know, and we live today forward. And I think for, you know, I was recently at a funeral and it was getting me thinking about the importance of legacies. And I remember the gentleman who had died he left a tremendous legacy behind. He was a man of great faith and great service, and he was greatly loved. And then within several months, there were several more funerals. So this thing, this whole idea of legacy was on my mind, and I thought, I have to start creating my legacy right now today. No excuses, no putting anything off by putting first things first. And you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how young you are, you know, Jesus' some of his final words were, you know, go and tell. So whatever relationships I have in my life, I have an obligation and a responsibility to share my faith lovingly with the people God places around me. And then second, make disciples. I should be investing in people. And if you are 80 or even 90 years old and you have somebody who's willing to sit at your feet or sit next to you and learn from even your mistakes and your failings, then you take advantage of that because God has you on this earth in your final days for a reason, and it's to invest in other people. Once again, the book is titled Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience, an excellent, very practical uh, book. Michelle, thank you for writing the book and for uh, talking with us this afternoon. Oh, it was a joy to write, really, because it helped solidify all the things that I know God wants me to learn. So thank you for having me. <laughs> thank you so much. Again, Michelle Howell is the author of Joyous Faith, The Key to Aging with Resilience. The book is published by Hendrickson Publishers and is currently available. I know I'm going to keep it handy uh, in uh, caring for my mom and anticipating the aging process myself. All right, coming up, we're going to, uh, we'll take a look at an evangelist who has gone on to his reward, and we'll let you know a little bit of what's going on later this week on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Many years ago, when I was still in uh, university at the University of Oregon, I was invited along with Dan Rice, who was just a friend at the time, and another couple, the Groners, to travel to Germany. Um, we were called Manna, a band, and we traveled around to various churches and events, and we did gospel music. Well, on one of those occasions, Reinhard Bonnke attended, 
and uh, expressed his disappointment that we were singing in English. Now, I had studied German. Two of the people we were traveling with were fluent in German. In fact, I uh, had uh, spent a, a full year in the country ministering in German. But we were told that the young people to whom we were appealing wanted to hear music uh, and uh, conversation in English. So that's what we had done. Well, uh, sometimes, sometime later, days into our trip, we decided to sing in German and did so auf Deutsch at one of the services and redeemed ourselves. <laughs> that's my uh, my first introduction to Reinhard Bonnke and uh, the redemption of a relationship when these Americans would come to Germany to sing and talk about the gospel. Well, I learned today that Reinhard Bonnke has died. He's considered a record-setting evangelist to Africa. Now, he's less known perhaps here than he is in other parts of the world, but German evangelist Bonnke, whose record-setting crusades led him to be nicknamed the Billy Graham of Africa, died on Saturday. He was 79. His ministry, Christ for All Nations, claims that uh, more than 79 million people came to Christ as a result of his career, which spanned from 1967 until his retirement in 2017. The Pentecostal evangelist preached a prayerfully uh, a prayerful message of Christ's transforming power while also boasting miracles and healings. Those who know him offstage, and this is according to Christianity Today, can testify to his personal integrity, genuine kindness, overflowing love for the Lord. That's according to his successor, evangelist Daniel Kalenda. His ministry was inspired and sustained by his rich prayer life, his deep understanding of the word, and his unceasing intimacy with the Holy Spirit. Christianity Today reported from his uh, largest in-person event where 1.6 million people gathered on a single night to hear him preach in Lagos, Nigeria. Now, Christianity Today featured him and his ministry in an issue the following year, calling him one of the continent's most recognizable religious figures. Historians have said that no Western evangelist spent as much time in sub-Saharan Africa as Bonnke, this German evangelist. Well, following his death, many African Christians offered their condolences on Twitter, saying, Rest well, and Africa will never forget you. The government of Nigeria stated that President um, Buhari, uh, who is Muslim, joins Christendom at large in mourning and the passing of renowned evangelist Reinhard Bonnke, 79, describing his transition as a great loss to Nigeria, Africa, and the entire world. Well, his ministry wasn't without controversy among evangelicals, and it was reported by Christianity Today back in 2001 uh, when they wrote, while some hail him as a spiritual giant, others scoff when he promises miracles and anointing. Critics say the last thing African Christianity needs is more preachers who focus on spiritually shallow events. They say the quality of discipleship, not the quantity of the crowd, is the key to reaching Africans. Still, ordinary Africans adore him. Bonke himself is a complex, uh, as he is controversial. While his crusades are often high in hype and hoopla, the evangelist is a caring pastor, single-minded in purpose and genuine in nature, both on and off the stage. His goal is simple, to win the heart of Africa for Christ. Well, the son of a pastor, Bonke felt the call of African missions as a kid, going on to attend seminary in Wales and became ordained in the German Pentecostal Church. He led a congregation in northern Germany, then became a missionary in the tiny nation of Lesotho in South Africa. There, the Spirit gave him a vision of the African continent, washed in the blood of Jesus, leading to his mass evangelism ministry. He founded Christ for All Nations in 1974. Only within the past several years has the ministry organized crusades 
in the United States, where Bonnke's name was more familiar among Pentecostals and Charismatics than Evangelicals at large. And while a longtime friend of preachers such as Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn, he was more deliberate about avoiding name-it-claim-it theology in his own preaching and about being open to financial oversight. He told Christianity Today back in 2013, some people call me a healing evangelist. I do not like that. I define myself as a salvation evangelist who also prays for the sick. Wherever we go, 95% of the meeting is a clear preaching presentation of the gospel. He went on to say that Billy Graham had inspired him personally. He wrote on Facebook after Graham's death in 2018 when he preached in a tent in Hamburg, Germany. I always felt connected to him. Well, Hillsong senior pastor Brian Houston cited Bonnke as an inspiration, saying, I love the way salvation resonates in his spirit, whether he's on a platform speaking to millions or uh, behind the scenes having a chat. Jesus is always on his lips. Wabanki was the author of 40 books, wrote in his 2009 autobiography, Living a Life of Fire. I still have only one sermon. I preach the simple ABCs of the gospel. He died at home. He was surrounded by his family. He survived by his wife, three children, and eight grandchildren. And whatever your opinion of Reinhard Bonnke might be, he now is uh, in the presence of Jesus, where ultimately that determination matters most. Again, Reinhard Bonnke dead at 79 in his home in Germany. Well, tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Anthony Segrist. He's the author of Speaking of God, An Essential Guide to Christian Thought and Conversation, I would add. That's coming up on Tuesday. On Wednesday, we'll talk with Hank Hanegraaff, uh, known as the Bible Answer Man. He's written a new book, Truth Matters, Life Matters More. In fact, an event in his life um, shifted his focus, not uh, in dramatic ways, but Um, softened him perhaps in some ways that I think you'll uh, find interesting, the unexpected beauty of an authentic life. That's coming up on Wednesday. On Thursday, we'll talk with Gary Thomas, who is author of When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. The book is published by Zondervan. And then on Friday, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news. Now, also mixed in all of that, we're going to talk with Michael Allen Harrison, who's uh, going to be in concert here in the Portland area. And we also have um, our guest artist, Uh, that I think James is going to be uh, interviewing maybe Stephen Curtis Chapman, who's coming to the Portland area for a a Christmas concert. So those two voices will be heard here on the Georgine Rice Show this week as well. I want to thank James Blend for engineering a portion of today's program and serving as producer, and Clark Hilton for primary engineer. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.